The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Scott Walker with Morgan Brennan and Mike Santoli. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange today. Carl, Jim and David have the morning off. Let's take a look at how futures are set up today. And you do have, well, a mixed picture across the board, but the S&P is only one third of one percent away from its best gain since 1997. Nasdaq's been up 11 of the past 12 days. So we'll see what the last second to last trading day of the year has in store for us. Our roadmap today starts with the record-breaking year for stocks, the S&P, within striking distance of its best yearly gain since 97. Plus, Tesla's China play, the automaker rolling out its first China-made Model 3 sedans from its new Shanghai factory, with deliveries set to ramp up next month. And Disney dominance raking in 40% of the U.S. box office in 2019. We begin, though, with the year-end rally and the record run for stocks. Mike, it's been quite a year and we go into 2020 seemingly with a lot of momentum. Yes, uh, been a very, you know, kind of orderly low drama rally in December. I mean, a lot of folks said we may be uh, set up for some kind of a pullback. Um, I do think we keep having to remind people it's been a great year, uh, obviously successive record highs for much of the year, but we started in a deep hole. And I think that that's important not to sort of downplay what a strong uh, performance stocks have had this year, but to point out that they're not necessarily all that far out on a limb because they're up 30 percent on a 12 month basis because they're up about 11 percent from 15 months ago. Right. So I do think that the broader uh, trend is pretty important to keep in mind. And obviously, implicitly, the market's suggesting a lot's going to go right next year. And and that's going to be, you know, the test as we get into the first quarter. Nice broad melt up as well. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. We've, we've had, obviously, Santa Claus rally under underway right now, coming into the final tra- two trading days of the year. Um, not necessarily a lot of volume or a lot of volatility within equities, but where you actually have seen some volatility this month has been currencies. The dollar index in particular, I, I bet you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, the dollar's um, obviously back has, and, and it's, it's, it's generally rolled over a little bit. So it's in the, one of the softest, uh, if you look at the U.S. dollar index, softest uh, level since, let's say, May, I think. So you go back several months. And it's interesting because there is kind of a call for 2020. People are suggesting that's going to perhaps continue or at least uh, the dollar is not going to go back toward new highs. That would probably fit with this general uh, kind of global cyclical improvement theme. Uh, and the idea that, you know, risk assets can uh, can be OK. Good, good backdrop for stocks. So I can't remember a period where you have stocks doing so well, continuing to set new records with such uncertainty about where earnings are going to go. 
Normally, yeah. earnings have fallen into place, or at least you're pretty confident they're going to. Now it's kind of like, who knows what's going to happen? What are earnings going to be in the coming year? I think that in general, you can say, first of all, this year, earnings held at record levels. That's the way to think about it, right? They're more or less flat at record levels. And so slight incremental growth from there is probably what is, is built into the market. Now, uh, you know, I think where the credit markets are, are priced, where, where bond yields are, it's probably supporting relatively high valuations on those earnings. Uh, but no, that is the big question, Scott. I mean, basically, uh, the, the, the phase one trade deal allowed the market to say, we're going to give the economy the benefit of the doubt. We're going to assume we're going to get reacceleration and we can price assets for that scenario even before we see the evidence. And I think the similar uh, case goes for earnings growth. Because yeah, I don't think you're going to hit the consensus, but I don't think anybody can expects them to hit the consensus. History is your friend, too, right? I mean, you have yeah. a gain like you have this year. The S&P's on average up more than 11 percent if you come into a year having done at least 20 percent. So yeah. history is on your side. Already, and, and we've seen the number crunching from a number of different strategists and uh, research groups showing just how strong the fourth year of a presidential cycle can be for stocks uh, historically as well. So that's going to be one to watch coming into 2020. The other thing that has got my attention right now is energy. We've seen something of a stealth rally for energy stocks uh, in the month of December. Best performing sector within the S&P. We had the U.S. carrying out def precision defensive strikes in Iraq and Syria against Iranian-backed militia over the weekend. We did not see crude move on that. So we have seen this rally within stocks. But in general, yes, crude prices are up double digits for the year. But when you step back and you look at what 2019 has meant, I mean, sanctions, supply cuts, yeah. attacks in Saudi Arabia, tanker seas, lots of geopolitical events, and yet you haven't seen a major spike in crude, and I think that's going to be one to watch. Plus, you have that International Maritime Organization anti-pollution mandate, which is going to have, we talk about trade flows, it's going to have a big effect on the cost of goods that are moving around to the ocean next year. You're going to have people start talking as well, Mike, about whether they're concerned about the melt-up going too, yeah. too fast. I think that's where we are tactically. So I, I do think short-term you can look at a variety of, of sentiment indicators and sort of trader positioning indicators. There's one uh, that I have here from uh, Ned Davis Research, a sort of composite of trading sentiment indicators. And it's pretty much up to where it was in early January uh, of 2018, which was not a great time uh, necessarily to, to put new money to work. So I do think Sentiment has definitely become to, toward an optimistic level, uh, and so you, know, you no longer have sentiment as a, in your favor if you're a bull. Uh, so in August, you had people very despondent, and you had more or less more anxiety than you would expect, given how modest the pullback was. That was the basis for this 14% rally since the August lows. Uh, I do think, keep in mind, when stocks are at new highs, you should expect people to actually think stocks are, are a good, th good thing to invest in. So it's not an outright sell signal, but January has seen some shakeouts. Uh, in the last uh, 20 years especially, you've seen a tendency of some kind of backing off action uh, in January. So I, I do think its sentiment is no longer your friend, um, but it reminds me a little bit of early uh, 2017. We broke out of the long range to a new high, and people were very excited after the tax cut. And yeah, I mean, and by the, the way, rally slowed back down. The manufacturing recession early no, exactly. And we had a recession scare this time. Exactly. Totally. Uh, so I, I think it's something to keep on the radar uh, that you don't necessarily want everybody to get overexcited. That being said, 
Wall Street strategists are not super bullish right now. The targets are relatively modest from today's levels. And the retail public has not really been throwing money at stocks. So flows have been very modest, uh, even though the market's up a lot. Therefore, they have a lot of equity in their, in their allocations. But uh, I don't think it's, it's something like every single person loves stocks. But sentiment is getting a little bit of a headwind. So when you hear comments like this is mid-cycle yeah. rather than late cycle, and you see that the shift, especially with the moves that the Fed took this year, makes sense? It, yes. So far, the script is playing out that way. And by mid, it doesn't mean we're only halfway through. It just means you're not at the end of it, right? And then basically the Fed has, has found a way to, uh, to, to kind of prolong things for a while. Now let's get a little more on this now. Joining us now is Prudential's chief market strategist, Quincy Crosby, and Wells Fargo asset management multi-asset strategist, Brian Jacobson. It's good to have you both with us. Quincy, I, I begin with you. You were sitting here listening to our, our conversation yeah. on the market. Where, where do you come down on, on how we're coming into 20 and where we may go? Well, one thing I do want to say, uh, Russia is the number one performing market this year. Mm. Think about that. Energy and a central bank that lowered rates. So we have a central bank globally that have been lowering rates. That's helped. We don't expect them to raise rates next year. We expect actually Fed Funds Futures is showing a rate cut next year. However, we're going to see bouts of profit-taking. There's no doubt about it. The market is at 19 times forward earnings. Something is going to come along. It could come up with a number of scenarios. There'll be profit-taking. However, I think that'll put more money to work. One of the things that fueled this market, this rally, was cash. We always look at how much cash was on the sidelines. It came in. Where's the cash going to come from for the next move up in, in January, I think you're going to see selling in certain sectors moving into other sectors. We would be hedging a bit. Uh, you see utilities down. You see REITs down. Treasuries. Those are the ones that will probably be attractive if, that, if you can't go options, if you can't you know, buy puts. You'll start seeing money going into those to hedge your portfolio. There will be profit-taking. There's no doubt in my mind. You know why? There always is. Yeah, come the, t- the turn of the year. Yeah. Brian, Morgan, in the crux of our conversation a few minutes ago, mentioned those who think we're in, you know, mid-cycle versus yeah. late-cycle. That's you. <laughs> she was talking squarely yeah. about you. Uh, well, yes, that's right. <laughs> and I think part of it is, uh, I mean, kind of twofold. Number one, uh, late-cycle seems to be the new mid-cycle, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people have been saying we've been late-cycle for years now, and uh, the economy and the markets have proven to be much more resilient than what I think people give it credit for. Uh, the second factor is that it's not a cycle, uh, right? I mean, there, it used to be that, uh, from an economic perspective, that you'd oftentimes have, like, the credit cycle, the consumer cycle, and the business cycle kind of synchronized as far as uh, leading to conditions of a uh, little bit of excess that needed to be corrected with recessions. And if you look at the data over the last maybe 10 to 20 years, you'll notice that those um, sub-cycles, so the consumer cycle, credit cycle, and business cycle, they're not really all that well synced up. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've had rather subdued growth that hasn't really created the, the excess conditions that need correcting. Uh, in fact, I, you know, a lot of 2019 was a year of the collapsing of the yield curve, the inversion of the yield curve, fears of recession. And 2020 is likely going to be a year in which we're going to see uh, the slope of the yield curve increase and perhaps a lot of those recessionary fears begin to fade, which is one of the reasons why sentiment might 
be you know, somewhat elevated, but it can continue to go higher. And that's why my team, we're really positioned uh, more biased towards risk assets, that is equities over fixed income, preferring uh, you know, commodity currencies over, say, uh, the U.S. currency. And so a lot of it is, uh, even though you, uh, it feels like it might be more late cycle, it's not much of a cycle. Quincy, politics are going to continue to dominate the headlines in 2020 as we come into the presidential election. What's priced into the market? What's priced into the market right now is that Trump is going to win, that he is not going to be kicked out of office at this point, and he'll win. In fact, the CNBC's own poll shows that 50 percent now, moving up from the low 40s, are seeing him handling the economy very well. It's for him to lose. And also not factored in is a progressive getting the nomination and winning. Now, if that changes, if that calculus changes, this market will have a very good reason to sell off. What happens if we don't get the profit taking that you you, you think we, we will? Does that make you more concerned? I mean, there are some saying if you continue to have this melt up, yeah. you're more ripe for a correction of, of some magnitude. It'll, it'll depend on earnings. One thing that we had from the clue of how the market is focused is on the IPO market, when suddenly fundamentals mattered. That all of a sudden, you know, everyone was saying, wait a minute, this company, that company, they, they can't be worth this much. This is how I think the market is going to focus uh, next year. Brian, um, you know, we were talking earlier about the dollar a little bit. I mean, do you think that the, the conditions are finally there for non-U.S. stocks to be uh, a beneficiary of all this? Well, uh, our team is positioning portfolios to hopefully take advantage of a little bit of dollar weakness here. Uh, we much prefer, say, uh, looking at uh, the dollar relative to the euro, so we prefer the dollar over the euro, but when it looks at a broader basket of currencies, whether it's the yen, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, emerging markets, uh, we think that we could be in store for a little bit of dollar weakness, which then from just the mathematical perspective, that does tend to enhance your uh, non-U.S. returns when you convert it back into U.S. dollars. So for a lot of our U.S. clients, we are preferring to have more unhedged currency positions, especially looking at EM, Japan, Canada, Australia, in anticipation that the dollar could weaken relative to those. But it is a little different when we're looking at, say, the dollar versus the euro. Um, but it has been quite a, a long run for the dollar, and uh, we're a little hesitant to call that it's a turning point for you know, the broader dollar index, just because a lot of people have been calling for that for a few years, and uh, the timing has been terrible. Brian, we appreciate your time, Quincy, as Thank well. You. Happy New Year to you both, and we'll see you in 20. Yeah. When we return, Tesla following up a record run for its stock with the delivery of its China-made vehicles. We're going to fill you in on that. And taking another look at the futures with just over 15 minutes until the opening bell. A little bit of a mixed picture. Both the Dow and the S&P 500 are indicated to open higher. The Nasdaq, lower. We got more Squawk on the Street live from Post 9 at the NYSE when we return. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
Welcome back. Tesla has begun delivering Model 3 vehicles built at its factory in Shanghai. The automaker says 15 of its employees received Model 3s that they purchased and that it plans to ramp up deliveries in China next month. Tesla shares have been on a record run, including a 93% jump in the second half of this year alone. Guys, two things that uh, get my attention about this. The first is the fact that this is a wholly owned factory by Tesla. So that's kind of key in the sense that Tesla is very much valued and sort of seen by many as more of a tech stock than an auto manufacturer. The fact that it could basically hang on to its technology, its IP, and operate like that in a market like China, uh, key to the company. And also, I think, really speaks to the fact that this is a market that's already starting to make these moves to open up to more foreign investment. That stock move gets your uh, attention as well, <laughs> you think? I mean... Up 80% in three months? Yeah, it's turned Hello? into, it's turned into um, you know, kind of people got too bearish, and it was a short squeeze, and now it's pure momentum. Yeah. And I think that the fact that the story is now China says so much, because this stock needs to feed off of the eternal tomorrow. It can't be about how many Model 3s we sell in this quarter versus last quarter because that's not going to sustain a $68 billion market value um, when you have this, this size of an actual business. So it has to be how much penetration in China. It's the largest EV market. By the way, what's the average selling price of a car, any car in China? $10,000 or something like that? So it's, you know, you don't have to think it through to say this is the next huge market. They're there. Um, they have competitive advantages. And it's a long runway before we even know uh, if they've realized that opportunity. And I think that's when the stock does best. Yeah, and I think it's a, a key moment for Tesla to be making the de these deliveries within that market right now, given the fact that 2020 is seen by many analysts, many auto watchers out there as a turning point for electric vehicles. You've got something like 10 new EV models poised to launch next year. So this puts Tesla ahead of uh, many in the potential future emerging EV game uh, as well. And of course, it comes on a day when you've got earnings from Neo too, and th that stock's moving higher as well. Higher a, deliveries. A remarkable run into the end of the year, yeah. and it really plays sort of into the conversation we started the show with, just where the market is in in general, and that that fear issue is the more you keep melting up, like yeah. the kinds of stocks that would be hit first if you do have any kind of turn of the calendar pullback? You sure. don't think there's going to be profit taking in names like this? I, I would have to imagine yes. Um, that being said, I think Tesla has always been its own species to, to a degree, meaning uh, what are the other stocks that have just run, uh, you know, without Apple. gravity? Apple, exactly. Ones that are super profitable and people are saying for years and years to come, they can protect those profits. That's not really the Tesla story. It's much more uh, speculative and animal spirits almost purely. Yep. All right, when we return to Squawk on the Street, Art Cashin is with us with what he's expecting from today's trading session as we count down to the opening bells. Let's take another look at futures. We're trying to get the best year for the S&P since 97. Don't need all that much to do it either. Less than one half of 1% away. More Squawk on the Street live from Post 9 at the NYSE when we return. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. 
You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. We are seven and a half minutes before the opening bell. Let's bring in Art Cashin, Director of Floor Operations with UBS, uh, for a preview of the day. Art, good morning. Good morning. How do you read this sort of late, uh, late December kind of incremental upside to the market we've seen in recent days? Um, seems like a seller strike uh, and then yields going up as well. So uh, what's, your, what's your initial take? Yeah, no, I think the seller strike is a very apt thing. I think it may have to do with uh, year-end tax planning. I think a lot of people said, yeah, I've got a big gain here, but I don't want to take it this year. I'm going to th- think about taking it next year and see what the balance of the year brings. So. I think you're apt in saying that there's a bit of a seller strike. Yields are going up, uh, in a sense, globally, but they're, they're inching up. I still believe there will be no rate hike this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Fed, uh, don't call it QE, but it is QE, and it's staying there. And that also is putting a bit under markets as we go into the new year. No rate hike in 2020, and that's generally a well-accepted thing because the economy performs as the Fed thinks, or how, what's the takeaway on that? Well, I, you know, I think if you talk to uh, the media pundits, they think toward year-end you actually might see a hike. But the markets yeah. themselves um, and, and the people trading the futures uh, don't seem to believe it. Uh, you know, I, I think the Fed learned its lesson well when it surprised the markets and disappointed them. And uh, so I, I, I think they will be very, very careful about what they do. And as I said before, when they were so surprised at the repo explosion, uh, and they still claim they haven't figured it out, and that is truly disturbing because that means that there are forces out there in the market that the, the top cop doesn't understand. And so... They've added more reserves to keep the market very liquid, and that has the effect of putting in more QE than when you were doing QE. What if, what if there's a rate hike that's not of the Fed's making? What happens if rates just continue to go up? You're at 192 on the 10-year. What happens if you get this slow creep? Is that a risk? Uh, it, it certainly is a risk. If you got above two, uh, I, I think you would certainly get the market's attention and see where you go from there. Oh, that's all? Well, just the two? That, that well, gets no, your attention? That's not that far away. I, I know, but, you know, I think they have uh, mileposts and landmarks that they look at, and I, I think two round numbers for some reason tend to focus people's attention, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where they go from there. You've got to remember one other thing. Many other central banks are realizing that negative interest rates are an absolute disaster. It destroys your banking system. And so uh, you saw that the Reichsbank and others are pulling back. Uh, I don't think uh, uh, some of the rest of the world will be so quick, but I do think, uh, you know, you've got Lagarde in there. And and I I don't think she's a fan of negative interest rates. Yeah, uh, that might be one of the big... uh big landmarks of this year, perhaps, that uh, we had that realization about negative rates. Art, happy new year. Thank you. Happy new year. Happy new year to you. All right. The opening bell is just minutes away. You're watching CNBC Squawk on the Street, live from the financial capital of the world, where the opening bell is set to ring in just about one minute. 
We're going to be watching to see what some of those big winners do in these last couple of days. I, I've just looked now again, and I just have a hard time believing the Nasdaq is over yeah. 9,000. I mean, technology's been such a huge winner, but that's such a it has just a standout number. Nine thousand. Um, you know, it's it's a tremendously weighted in Apple and Microsoft right now. Both of those stocks uh, essentially stretching to new highs uh, successfully. Tremendous years, and then semiconductors. Right. So that's basically all of the Nasdaq in terms of the real drivers. Obviously, biotech has also come around as well. Software. But, uh, what a big year for some software. Yeah. The real question is whether you're going to have uh, a sector re-rotation. A lot of times it's just temporary in January or for the full year uh, we're going to have to find maybe more cyclical sectors to, uh, to take things higher if it's going to happen. Yeah. You, uh, you hear the applause is starting to go. You are watching the opening bells which are going to uh, start ringing in uh, about 10 seconds or so. A couple trading days left. We'll see what happens today. You got it here at the uh, New York Stock Exchange, the big board, the Best Friends Animal Society, a national animal welfare organization, and at the NASDAQ, Molecular Data, a chemical e-commerce platform uh, in China. All right, so we'll see what happens. We're trying to get the best gain in the S&P since 1997. Yeah. 29.6% is the gain that you need. You're at 293 yeah. Ish. Your total return uh, for this year with dividends already well over 30%. The difference, again, I mentioned about the whole calendar effect and we started off so low. In 1997, you were starting at an all-time high at the end of 96. In 2013, where you had approximately the same game right now, you were a few percent below uh, an all-time high and then got to a high in uh, in the spring of that year. So I, I do think that it's, it's definitely notable you got a 30% up year. But um, a lot of the, the setup was such that uh, it amplified that view. To me, it's almost more interesting that it's been a year of two parts. You had defensive stock leadership, a lot of um, uh, not just defensive, but quality, yeah, growth, proxies, traditional growth type like names working for the first two thirds, roughly, of the year. And then once we got past that sort of recession scare, the Fed was kind of OK with three rate cuts and, uh, and going on hold. Then it became a cyclical revival in financials doing things, but also uh, not really causing a huge sell off in the defensive. So it was kind of the everything rally by the end of the year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good way of putting it, the everything rally, because literally everything did rally. I mean, whether it was gold or bonds or, you know, stocks, it it, it was that kind of year. You know, Barron's is one of those making big predictions for for the year ahead. And it's a big cap world, right, for them. Viacom, CBS, they just completed their deal. Apple, Netflix, Coca-Cola. What does that tell you about the, the kinds of stocks that may work in the year ahead? One of the takeaways from, from I believe, this, this approach is that looking for big stocks that aren't going to be susceptible to continued cost gains like wages going up, in other words, can preserve profit margins. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's what, it's interesting because you have that slant on what 2020 might hold. And the other one says, hey, small caps have just kind of broken out. Maybe that's going to work. And that does not fit at all with this idea that um, it's all about kind of defensible profit margins because those companies basically are much more, you know, swinging with the cycle. So I don't think necessarily you can say right now which approach is going to take it. Yeah, I also think it's it's key. We've seen some margin pressure this year. We can talk about the effect that the trade war and tariffs have had on companies' bottom lines. Arguably, the bigger issue in terms of, of margins has been the fact that we're at these record low, near record low unemployment rates here in the U.S. and what that's meant in terms of wage increases. You've got headlines out of the Wall Street Journal in the last couple days. More workers eligible for overtime pay in 2020. Rank and file workers get bigger raises. In terms of 
a sector like manufacturing, for example, here in the U.S., uh, the National Association of Manufacturers this year, over and over again in its surveys, has said it wasn't tariffs or trade that was the biggest concern for their members. It was those labor costs and trying to get enough workers and what that has meant. So that's probably going to be a key going into 2020 as well. We have more states increasing their minimum wage uh, at exactly. the turn of the year as well. So that's been uh, that's actually been. And it speaks to why the consumer, story. this idea of a bifurcation in the economy, why the consumer has continued to be strong and held the U.S. Yeah. economy up, even as we've seen weakening around the world earlier this year. And by the way, Jay Powell has made uh, it a staple of his comments to say that the link between wage growth and broader inflation as they measure it has seemingly been loosened or broken. Uh, and that's the question for the markets, I think, as we go into this year. Everyone took it as a great as great news that the Fed said we're going to let inflation run as far as it can run before we think about raising rates. That was a positive when we were afraid of, you know, disinflation and yield curve inverted and recession. But if you, in fact, start to get some inflation, the Fed says we're not concerned yet. Then, to your point earlier, Scott, see what the bond market does about that. I want to flag another stock for you. Uh, it's worth talking about because it's been a good year for Disney. Yeah. Stock's up yeah. 35% or so. It's been the year of Disney. You, you know, relieve yourself of some of the, the, the bigger concerns surrounding TV and you've got Disney+. Plus. You've got Star Wars, and then you have this stat, which is just mind-blowing, that 40% of all box office in this year came from Disney. Exactly. I mean, now, part of that, not a tremendous part, but part of that is that they acquired Fox, uh, and that added to their market share from whatever the Fox Studios uh, produced in 2019. I think a year ago, everyone knew the box office piece was going to be a very bullish part of the Disney story. I don't think it was easy to say in advance 12 months ago that the pricing of Disney Plus and what they were going to throw into it was going to be this massive overnight catalyst, which is exactly what it was in the chart when they detailed all that. Yeah, here's what's fascinating about this, too. You've got Disney obviously dominating the box office, even as it launches its streaming service. Ticket sales, the U.S. box office in terms of ticket sales this year could, according to some estimates, hit $11.4 billion. That would be the second highest take of all time behind last year. And so we have these conversations about what streaming is going to mean for the box office, but it's still been another strong year in part because of this content that's coming out. I'd also uh, flag another stock that's moving higher today, and actually it's space. It's a space-related name. It's one of the few publicly traded pure play space names. It's Maxar Technologies. Stock's up almost 17 right now. This has been a real turnaround story this year. Stock traded as low as about $4 a share earlier in the year. It's now up trading at nearly $17 a share. It's moving higher this morning because it said that it's going to sell one of its businesses, its space robotics business, to a consortium led by Northern Private Capital for about $760 million U.S. Uh, and so it's a sale that's seen as going towards its debt load, and it's a company that has been starting to get some uh, pretty noticeable, pretty sizable awards from NASA and the like this year. So it's just been a name to watch. The other one I would watch within space is Virgin Galactic, which obviously marked a milestone this year, becoming the first of this new breed of um, new space economy names to go public. We still don't have that space tourism business up and running. That's expected in the sometime in the middle of next year. But the stock is trading just below $12 a share right now. That was where it initially priced when this reverse merger uh, took effect. We saw it 
plunge uh, a couple up until a couple weeks ago, and it's steadily moved higher because you're getting some initiations, uh, bullish initiations from the likes of Morgan Stanley. I was going to mention, just in terms of the leadership of the S&P 500, very much um, kind of buy the losers type trade going on, people betting on the tax law selling drying up. Yeah. So uh, energy, Helmer campaign, Halliburton uh, up top, Walgreens Boots Alliance, the weakest stock in the Dow uh, year to date, is also up two thirds of a percent. And then 3M, uh, another tough one. So clearly the right now it's kind of mopping up uh, some of the stuff that's lost this year, uh, betting on January, which often is people talk about the January effect. It's not just that stocks have tended to go up. It's more about um, beaten up stocks from the prior year have a revival that often includes small caps. Good day for financials uh, in what has been a really good run as well for a lot of the banks. I'm looking at some of the names, you know, Goldman's up this year. More than 40 percent. It's been a good year for J.P. Morgan and some of those other names. Maybe not surprising, given the fact that yields have started to tick up. There's a better feeling about the global economy. Yeah. Maybe it's troughed. You get a little bit better growth. You get rates higher. Yeah, Fed stock cutting rates. That was actually your, your kind of green light to a degree. And then the, the yield curve going positive. And I mean, they were always kind of acclaimed as cheap and they were cheap. But only if, in fact, you weren't at the end of an expansion. If you were going to have to worry about, you know, recessionary type conditions and, and credit costs going up, then uh, cheapness turns into a value trap. That didn't happen. And now they got, you know, in a, in a kind of unified way, revalued higher. So uh, see how that, if it can continue at this it's point. An, because the yield curve, by the way, has gone positive, but it's still relatively narrow in, uh, in, in a positive slope. It, it's an important group. It's not as big as it once was. You know, other sectors have eclipsed it by large margins in terms of the S&P. But nonetheless, it's still an important group in terms of sentiment, where we are globally from an economic standpoint and, and, and you know, where the prospects are for those stocks. And for a, a way of, of flagging whether, in fact, there's financial stress or systemic risks out there, and the market's saying really not. If you look at where corporate bonds are trading and the way financial stocks uh, have traded, it, it's not really telling you you have to worry at this point uh, about anything toxic making its way through the system. I'm looking at energy, too. Morgan mentioned uh, energy earlier and, you know, the fact that, you know, so much has had a good year, you know, commodities and gold and the like, and oil has done really well. And what energy stocks themselves have in store for the year, if it's going to be a true value comeback or continuation, I mean, they've already really value stocks have had a nice comeback, whether it's a continuation of that and whether energy plays a big role. Yeah, I think that's going to be a key question. I mean, energy, as I mentioned earlier, it's the best performing sector uh, for the month of December so far. You could peg that back to this whole idea of a reflation trade. Uh, the, the hopes that we get this phase one U.S.-China trade deal uh, put on, you know, well, it's on paper, but actually signed uh, and made official in the coming days. Um, so it's going to be key to watch. Also, you've seen the rig count here in the U.S. come down. So what does that mean for production in 2020? And what does that mean at a time where debt is increasingly coming into focus, at least from public market investors where the U.S. shale producers are concerned. Looking at the, some of the majors, though, right? Exxon and Chevron, done anything. No, they haven't. And they're, they're not really held names. They have very little leverage to the actual commodity price or really global growth that much. They're kind of, you know, they kind of, I always joke, refine oil into dividends. Um, and that's kind of how they're viewed is, is mostly as a cash play uh, as opposed to. But, you know, I do yeah. think the big question is, it, it, 
you talk about them being valued, yes, they're out of favor, and yes, they got beaten down, but the earnings base isn't that high. It doesn't look like they, they screen out as all that cheap unless you get a real snapback uh, in the commodity prices and earnings going to next year. Also, just flag that uh, as we sit here and talk uh, in the last 10 minutes since those opening bells, uh, we are seeing the major averages all tick lower. Uh, the Dow right now is down about 91 points, and the NASDAQ, uh, which we mentioned at 9,000 before the opening bell, has slipped back below that level. Uh, it looks like it's at 89.57 right now. So, mind you, I realize we're still uh, holiday week here. Oh, yeah. Some low volumes, but but we are seeing uh, the averages move lower. I mean, as the we Nas- talk. Nasdaq's entitled, right? I mean, it's yeah. up 11 of 12 sessions. Yeah. Maybe it, you know, it just did a the hundred it, yard dash. It, it felt needs like a little Thursday bit of a break. It, it felt like Thursday and Friday. If you really needed to be invested by the end of the year, you tried to get it done, and so maybe you're just getting a little bit of a spillback from that because everybody sees the same numbers about how you know. We've had a great run. The market looks a little bit stretched. Sentiment is getting uh, a little bit toppy. And so maybe front-running a, a potential January setback. How about this notion that if you do have a good year in 2020, it's going to be top-heavy? Because of all the second-half noise, you know, election, you're going to have oh, further You mean front-loaded? Yeah, front-loaded. Yeah. Um, what, what you make, you better make between January and, say, the start of the summer. I think that's very plausible. It also feels very consensusy. So I don't know what that means because the look, the, the technicals of the market show the trend is still higher. So I don't know if that means that you know you've, we've already front loaded a bunch of it. But um, if you look at the the way that the options market has been pricing potential volatility moments next year, it has been concentrated around March and then around the election. March is Super Makes Tuesday, sense. and then the election, obviously. So. Who knows if that means everyone already assumes it's going to happen and it won't, or we have to be on, on guard for that. All right. Bob Pisani's watching all of it. Has more on what's moving this morning. Hey, Bob. Uh, market's running up against some resistance, Scott, and it's about time. It should be. So Apple, McDonald's, Disney, all big winners on the year, all a little weak today. Just take a look at some of the sectors. Banks have been holding up pretty well. We had a little bit of move up in the yields this morning here. So a big leadership group in the second uh, uh, half of the year. Energy holding up a little better. Big rally since the tax law selling ended there. Uh, semis, which has been a market leader all day. There's, a, there's some profit taking uh, that's going on. Take a look at some of the banks here, because once again, small smattering of new highs today. Not that many, but Citi, J.P. Morgan, PNC, um, uh, new highs, uh, Key Corp moving up. Uh, it's been a great year for the banks, but not in the first half of the year, most of the bank rally here, look at these stocks here, new high, Citigroup, uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, nice gains for the year. But you want to look at the index, the KBE, which is the bank ETF. And really, that was sort of flattish and underperforming the overall market until about here. This is October. And that's when we saw yields started to move up, number one. And the Fed announced these new liquidity measures. I know it's OK, not QE. Don't call it that. But October 11th. And that was right there. And and there you can see the bank stock started coming over, uh, uh, finally breaking out of that technical pattern, uh, the, uh, the top there that we saw throughout the year. So bear in mind, the banks did really well, essentially, in the fourth quarter. As far as where we're going now, let's just call it a, a classic Santa Claus rally. I think that's a fair way to characterize what's going on. We've got a quiet, low liquidity market. That means low volume. This is traditionally what goes on here. We're leveraging the existing uptrend that has been out there for the last couple of months. The good news is we've got a hopeful macro backdrop. What does that mean? It means no recession in the United States. The consumer is strong, and there's some hope for a global bottoming in the economy. That's a little bit murky, and 
that's a bit of a problem and maybe in the near future. The bad news is we're way, way overbought here. If you take a look at, I look at relative strength indicators on a two-week basis. This just indicates how difficult or easy it is for the markets to move forward. When you're over 70, you're overbought. When you're close to 80, you're way overbought. This is at the highest levels in two years now, the S&P 500 at 78. What this means is it's very difficult on a historical basis for the market to push forward with the same moves it's been seeing in the last several weeks. That means we're meeting resistance, which is exactly what we're happening here. Healthcare, China's been on a rally as well on the trade talks uh, overall. So the one issue here out here is this global bottoming story. It's difficult to call. It's, it's a little bit murky. We saw uh, on Friday Japan retail sales and industrial production kind of disappointed. Some of the South Korean numbers over the weekend also were a little disappointing. So this global bottoming story is a little bit iffy right now. Uh, in the uh, evening tonight, we'll get China's PMI and non-PMI uh, numbers. We'll see uh, industrial production numbers. Eurozone PMI will be out out there. And yes, industrial production is a small part of the global economy, but people still watch it. U.S. ISM manufacturing, we've been below 50 for several months now, really since probably August. And we'll keep an eye on all of that. The question is, a lot of people will say, oh, well, well, don't worry about the fourth quarter. It's the first quarter that really matters. And we know that some of the governments will come off and say it's not a big thing. The question is whether investors will give us the benefit for the doubt of the doubt here on that. So here we are. We're very, very close to closing at a new high. Uh, for the S&P 500. I think the key thing here is we'd have the best year uh, in uh, uh, 3249 is what we need to close at. Close at 3249 will be the best year since 1997. Still a pretty darn good year, up about 28%. Morgan, back to you. Bob, thank you. It might be a holiday week, but no shortage of potentially market-moving data this week. For more on today's movers, though, let's get over to Frank Holland at the NASDAQ. Frank. Hey there, Mark. You know, the Nasdaq starting today off in the red, even falling back below 9,000 after breaking an 11-day win streak on Friday. Tesla, that was the best performing stock in the Nasdaq 100 last week. Today, falling more than 4% on concerns over battery production issues at its gigafactory out in Nevada, even though its partner in the joint venture, Panasonic, says those labor shortages have been addressed. Now over to FANG stocks. Tough day for FANG stocks with the exception of Amazon. Amazon up about a half a percent so far today. And now looking over to healthcare and also biotech stocks, a big reversal for them. They started off pretty strong. Now Walgreens Boots Alliance, the only one still in the green, only up fractionally. The NASDAQ off to a tough start after a very strong December, up about 4% for the month. Morgan, back over to you. Frank Holland, thank you. When we return the 2020 playbook on the defense sector, as we wrap up what has been quite an eventful year for the group, as we head to break, take a look at the movement in treasuries this morning as well. Squawk on the street, we'll be right back. Welcome back. As we get ready to wrap up 2019, CNBC is taking a closer look at what investors can expect in the new year. It is time now for the 2020 playbook on the defense sector. 2019 was defined by more military modernization, more mergers, and more tech talk as cloud took center stage and Google faced AI blowback. 2020 will be the year those technologies are adopted and the year the military's might officially extend to the final frontier. First, peak defense dollars. The 2020 U.S. budget increased defense spending by 3%, but don't be surprised if that begins to flatline, thanks to Pentagon reforms and the outcome of the upcoming election.
Still, international demand will keep growing and the U.S. will keep buying more aircraft, ships, and missiles, including hypersonics, which will continue to get attention as more prototypes are developed. Second, Space Force launches. The sixth military branch goes from science fiction to reality. Under the Air Force umbrella, the first new service in over 70 years will receive just a tiny fraction of the budget. With recruitment efforts, headquarters, and collaboration with the reinstated Space Command on the manifest. And third, consolidation continues. Or deal-making, at least. Expect United Technologies and Raytheon to sell some businesses to get their deal approved. L3 Harris may shed some assets post-merger. And speculation will continue about prospective takeover targets Textron and Aerojet Rocketdyne. So, of course, 2019 was another strong year for defense stocks, even with all the issues, all the pain uh, being borne out by Boeing, which is a top holding for many of the aerospace and defense ETFs. The ITA is up 29% year to date, so it's basically uh, in line with the S&P. The XAR, the Spider S&P Aerospace and Defense ETF, though, is up 39%. The expectation from analysts is that we're going to continue to see these names run at least into next year because the earnings growth potential is really there. Yeah, it'll be interesting because it, they're also defensive in addition to being, you know, exposed to the defense yes. industry, meaning within industrials, they obviously are a little bit less exposed to the global cycle and see if uh, perhaps the preference goes to other types of, uh, of industrials. And then, of course, as you, you know, as you mentioned, it always becomes uh, kind of a campaign you know, story, whether properly or not, they trade on presidential election office. I, that's exactly where I was going with this, because even though they might not be as uh, affected, they might be more insulated by global macro uh, developments, things like trade talks, et cetera, they're much more um, insulated from that. But the presidential election is going to be one to watch. That said, the fiscal 2021 budget proposal, we're expecting that in February at the earliest. And if we get that before the end of next year, before the presidential election, um, that could mean more defense spending into the following year, despite who wins. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.